HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This piece was brought to you by Roberta's, robertaspizza.com. This week, Meat and Three is taking you to market and all over the world, from Newfoundland to Tunisia. Well, a lot of us think of, you know, the British Empire trading things like spices and sugar and silk. But you write that it actually began with salt cod from Newfoundland. <laughs> there was a port closure in Tunisia, which was horrible. I mean, it was months, boats just setting on the water waiting to go, and they couldn't go anywhere. And we'll learn about how markets have changed, whether because of their customers or the climate. A few years ago, something around 10 years, it was totally different. It almost manifests itself to almost smelling like an old fire pit. When you Mm -hmm. put it out, it has that sort of charcoal-y smell to it. It's not good for wine. Join us this week on Meet and 3 for our global market tour. And don't forget to subscribe to Meet and 3 wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Darren Bresnitz. On this LA-only episode, we hang out with two of our favorite sando makers in the city, Nick and Akira of Conby. Since we sat down to chat, they've been named to Food & Wine's Best New Restaurant in 2019, and they've really established themselves as the go-to sandwich place on the east side. Then we head just down Sunset to Dangerbird Record Studios, where we hang out with Mirrorball who share some songs off their upcoming Dangerbird Records release and talk to us about the underground L.A. music scene. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Snacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky Tunes.
Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Darren Bresnitz. We are here with Nick and Akira of Conby in Los Angeles, Echo Park. Yeah, right. Echo Park. Yeah. If we want to dial it in. Yeah. Uh, welcome to Snacky Tunes. Welcome to your first podcast. Thanks for having us. Um, I just want to get everyone in the right set of mind for those who are listening. Can you guys define the Japanese concept of the sando and why it's so important? Well, um, for well, how it relates to us is there are convenience stores in Japan called konbini, which is kind of where our name is derived from. Um, but uh, but yeah, so they're really tidy sandwiches, um, somewhat filling, but not gonna, not gonna not gonna kill you. And um, you know, some really common ones are kind of like pork or egg. Mm-hmm. They always come on this like really soft. Um, Milk bread, it's a very specific kind of bread, very specific texture, and uh, yeah, I guess the 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 hallmark of it is they're really portable and kind of easy to eat without being super messy. Um, I think it's yeah. just a everyday food for most Japanese people, right? That you can rely on. It's available very early in the morning. It's available late at night, and most people t- tend to eat them. I don't think twice. Yeah, it's not. It doesn't break the bank. It doesn't break the bank. Yeah, exactly. Now, for the version you guys do, it looks simple and beautiful, but there is so much going into it. And part of that is because of your culinary histories. And I know, Nick, you started cooking when you were in your late teens, when you were 18, or you started working in the industry. Oh, yeah. I think my my first kitchen job was when I was like 14 years old. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, What was the first job? Did you do the thing where you did the dishwasher all the way up? I did wash dishes, yeah. I I actually washed dishes. Man, I guess the first, first job, I was like 13. I washed dishes in a nursing home. Oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) That was pretty wild. I haven't heard the dishwashing in a nursing home to sandwich shop in Echo Park story a thousand times. (laughs) So common. It's such a common trajectory. It's a different story now. Um, But what drew you in at such a young age? And especially having to essentially dedicate your adult life to it and to be lucky enough to figure that out so early on. Mm. Um, Well, I guess, you know, as as a kid, I always watched like cook shows, cooking shows, all that good stuff. And it was always interesting to me. And then kind of just the time came where I wanted a little more freedom and and making some money on my own meant that freedom. So I, I, I had always liked cooking. So I, I ended up, you know, in, in, in a restaurant um, and uh, I just really liked it. I liked the, the environment and the, the camaraderie. And um, yeah, I, I just got hooked. <laughs> and Akira, you grew up in Seoul and Tokyo, right? Before. I grew up between the two, yeah. My my mom's Korean, my dad's Japanese, so we just kind of grew up between the two. A lot of sandos when you were growing up? A lot of sandos, a lot of popsicles. Yeah. And um, my my grandparents in Korea cooked for us from like their garden. Mm. I didn't really know that until I was older. I just thought I ate a lot of convenience food yeah but yeah they, they basically when when i was growing up there was still a very poor country so it was not like they were doing anything special it's just like that's what they had to do so they grew everything they fermented everything they you know they pickled stuff just like off the land and that's that's what like a lot of the grandparents still do there if you go right they're still in the forest forging like 
every day right on their like hands and knees and you're like they're 85 years old just and, like and it's not so much for instagram but for just their no, way of life yeah and it tastes better and 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 that's just how they know how to make food and that's what i grew up eating i i didn't know that till i was much older but i grew up between the two and then we then my family moved to connecticut when i was around six and then i you know was there and when did you start getting into food did when did it click about you know the food you had when you were younger, or did that not click until after you started cooking? I really didn't like Asian food. Mm-hmm. I, in Connecticut, I, I just pretty much didn't really see any Asian people till in all of high school. So I, I really liked pasta, anything Italian, mm-hmm. and anything Jewish I ate a lot of. Um, it was just kind of the, the culture I was around. And I did everything I could not to eat Asian food at all. Mm-hmm. But my mom was an amazing, amazing cook. She would make like uh, a meal for my dad, a meal for my sister, and a meal for me. All three different kind of meals every night. And I didn't realize how much work that was till recently. Oh, yeah. You get a kid and you yeah. have a job and all of a sudden you go, what's that three-course dinner you put on the table? Uh, like, Oh, no. Everyone should just eat the same same thing. Yeah. You know, I wonder now, because when you talk to a lot of people that are our age who came to America, all they wanted was American food because... The idea of international food wasn't as common as it is now because now on Instagram, kids can look at right. food in Japan, food in Korea, food in, in Europe. I wonder now if kids who are coming over to America still just want to normalize in their mind through eating American food. Oh, I don't know. I mean, it's just easier for me to... It was. I was always drawn to pasta, mm-hmm. but in Connecticut, it was just easier to simulate if I just ate you know, mm-hmm. whatever fast food was around. So yeah. I ate a lot of Dunkin' Donuts every day and like McDonald's, Burger King. It's my whole diet in high school was that. And just like, I needed calories for sports. So I didn't really think too much of it. And it was delicious. And then it was like, TGI Fridays was like a splurge. Sure. And, you know, like Chili's. Like all, I ate all of those places. And anyone who knows me now would, won't believe that. But I yeah. did grow up eating all that until college. And then in college, I decided I, w- I wanted to eat a little more fancier food but i hadn't really eaten any of that until like i went off to school so now you guys both wound up in new york around the same time uh in like the early-ish mid-2000s the aughts Mm -hmm. uh what drew you there and you know that was a very special time in in the new york food scene if not the whole national culinary scene what drew you what did you guys remember from that being that time together how'd you guys meet Mm. um well i ended up there because um I knew I wanted to get out of the South, which is where I'm originally from. Mm-hmm. And I had worked with some people that just said, hey, you, you got to go to New York. Like, and, and someone put me in touch uh, with, with Tin, uh, Tin Ho over at, at, at uh, Sambar at the time, mm-hmm. Momofuku Sambar. Um, and I gave him a call, and he's just like, whatever, dude from the South, like, like, like you're friends with a, a good friend of mine, so just call me when you get here. And... Uh, so I had gone to like culinary school at the, it was called the French Culinary Institute at the time. And uh, I was working at, at, at Momofuku at the same time. Uh, for some reason, they gave me a job. Uh, <laughs> I mean, some bar was a little, it was wild when it opened. It was, it yeah. was such a... This was like a couple months after it opened. So, when they were still doing the burritos still and everything. Burritos, oh, like, yeah, 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 I wonder if I saw you there. Delicious. It, it, probably. I was there most... 
Like it was yeah. ahead of its time. I'm gonna say it was. It, was. Time. it was. Nobody came. But it was ahead of its time. I know. But you know, I felt like that was very indicative of what was going on in New York at that time, where it was definitely testing the waters. And in some ways, you could draw through line, which we will, to what you guys are doing now. Mm-hmm. That New York was testing those boundaries. Like, okay, we're going to be very focused in this pouring all these really high end chef stuff, but into these seemingly simple foods. Sure. Um, yeah. So I mean, honestly, what what, what drew me there was just. Uh, a, a job which seemed like a good idea and, yeah. and, and going to school and all that and I had never been to New York City before like I was like 18 I had like five five or six hundred bucks and, and a dream just kind of twinkle in that eye <laughs> I just went <laughs> so yeah and well, what, I mean that's a shorter I, hop from Connecticut well I was I went to college there so I was going there for school actually I was supposed to be there for 9-11 but I deferred till January. So I got there in January of 02. Yeah. And um, I was in school and I was not a very good student. I don't really like to study. So I was going out to eat a lot uh, at, at restaurants I've never seen before. So Where it, were you eating at that time? Uh, it was like anything that was like pizza. I mm-hmm. ate a lot of pizza and, and up near up school, I went to a lot of bagel places that mm. I just don't, we didn't have in Connecticut. So yeah. I was really into that. And just, I would wander through all the old school grocery stores like Zabar, oh, yeah. Fairway and just get lost. I was like, I don't know any of these, any of these ingredients. Um, I, I didn't know how to cook for myself. I, I mean... I didn't do anything. I was literally like open up a box of mac and cheese and eat it. That was that was my extent of my skills. Um, but at the, you know, there's a lot of friends that I had made at the time that really liked to go out to eat. They they've grown up in the city. They're used to like that kind of stuff. And um, I I was on a very different path. It yeah. wasn't uh, interesting to me to cook. It was more just like. Oh, it'll, it's good to know how to do it, or it's like you know what to order at a restaurant more mm-hmm. than like I want to do this for a profession. And uh, but I, I did a lot of other jobs uh, in summertime, like internships at like investment banking stuff. And mm-hmm. It just wasn't for me. So I, I ended up nothing going, says like being young, New York, interning at a you know banking. It place. wasn't uh, for me. I couldn't sit on any of these any more of these conference calls for. Dave, are you there? Management. Dave. Yeah. yeah, Dave, 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 I'm here. I'm here. Okay. Yeah, I'm here. I'm here. Something yeah. like that. It's just so horrible. But um, So then how'd you get into food and how'd you get into the first kitchen? I went, actually went to culinary school as well. Just at the, at the time it was called International, no, it was, it was called Peter Kumps. It just changed oh, to yeah. International Culinary Institute or whatever. The ICE? Yeah, ICE. ICE, yeah. And I went on the weekends during college. So I went to like nine to five. I didn't really have a lot of friends during school, so I had plenty of time to myself. And <laughs> when, uh, when you were eating bagels, you were oh, at yeah, culinary no school. No one wants to hang out with me, so um, I did that, and, and I just thought, hey, I'll be an iBanker. I'll make a lot of money, yeah, and then I'll just be able to like cook. To right when you're at your house yeah, in the yeah, Hamptons, great. Be like, oh my god, a I'll meet some cook. people. Yeah, 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 yeah. That'll be great. That was the whole theory. It wasn't like a, a cohesive plan, but uh, and then I finished cooking school and didn't do anything with it. I was like, yeah, it's fine. And then a couple years later, I just was, uh, I left New York for like six months to like go see my parents and they're like, you need, you need to do something. So I ended up cooking at a restaurant in LA that was not a good restaurant. Yeah. It's not even worth mentioning, but, uh, it's just really nice to do something that was tangible. Like, yeah. I had never worked in a, 
a real job where it wasn't just an office. So it was always just like projects on a computer. And uh, that was nice. You just go home and be like, this is, you know, if you work this hard, you know exactly what you did. And yeah. if you did nothing, you also know you did nothing. So yeah. That was really nice. And uh, then I moved back to New York and I started working at um, uh, Five Ninth at the time for Jack Plot Show. Sure. And then I moved on to Franny's when it was like the old crew, 0506, you know. And then I worked through a couple other Batali restaurants and I ended up at Momofuku because of Peter Serpico. Oh, shout out to Serpico. Philadelphia Pride. Uh, Serpico is is one of the best cooks I know and and I can't say uh, enough good things about him. I think... uh, And so you two met at Momofuku. Yeah, I was at the original Nuno Bar. Okay. Uh, I came in to eat, actually. Uh, I lived around the corner. I came in to eat late night at Sambar. And... um, uh, Serpico had just told me to come in and eat and he just was like I'm gonna cook for you and he cooked for me I was like this is definitely the best food that has been I remember that night I actually I actually remember that night was this <laughs> was this after Psalm changed its format it, it yeah, was when got... late night was starting oh yeah, yeah. that um, was those meals that time of Momofu- I mean to me I felt when people came to New York and like I want a New York restaurant I want a New York experience I go I, I, I know what you're saying just go to Sambar <laughs> and everyone had that, like, because they wanted, it was such of the air, like, it really felt it like the center wild, of what was going on. wild time. Give me one story. Give me one story. Well, that night, uh, I remember. Come on. <laughs> I remember. Just don't smile and look away. Just give me one story I, and we'll go to break. I remember that night, it was just like, it was like 07, 08. Mm-hmm. And. I have a good story. I, we have tons of stories, but this is just <laughs> like an early glimpse of what food was like at the time. Yeah. It was just. Every dish was coming out was like Serpico and a couple other people were just just cooking like yeah. off the cuff, which none of our friends do anymore. It's it's just not what we do. Yeah. But at the time, it was really great, and it was like twelve courses like of hits. Yeah. And uh, I don't talk to people next to me at a restaurant. It's not something I do. But these people next to us were like taking photos of every dish and like asking us, "Hey, what's that?" And I was like, "I don't I don't know what your deal is." Yeah. So. They were like, we're bloggers. I was like, I have no idea oh, yeah. what you're saying to me. Um, and I had never seen that before. So that obviously started happening a lot more. But that was the first night I remember it happening. And that was at Sambar. And then it just c- continued to <laughs> go from there. But I can trace it back to that night. Just the whole thing. Yeah. I fe- yeah. Very odd to me. What was your story? Because it looked like it. No, it's, it's fun. Uh, so there was this... so. There was a mushroom salad on the menu back yep. then, um, and it's one delicious. Of the, one of is very delicious. Pistachio puree. I don't know if if my experiences with it, it like made it stick in my memory or if I if uh, it is really delicious. But um, but yeah. So one of the things as a cook is like you don't run out of of, of your mise en place. You're, you're you're prepped to make a dish. Yeah. Right. And and David was very 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 uh, strict about this. Uh, and this dish wasn't even like really like fully on the menu yet, but he was like testing it out on like friends that would come in, and I I had made the normal amount of stuff for the service that day that I would normally make, and and like he had more people come in than than what I had experienced before that he was sending this out to, so I was like running out of these radishes, right? They're like cured and some salt stuff, not you know whatever, um, and um, so I was running out and I was like, crap, I I can't. I can't run out of this and like let him know I'm running out. So like, I run down to the walk-in fridge and I get some radishes and I hide in the closet 
downstairs. There's like a storage closet. Uh, and I clean them and I, and I, and I, and I season them and stuff like, like we do. And then like, I run back upstairs I'm like, ah, oh, here, they were just right, right in the walk-in. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh man. I was in a closet. The real story is Nick was in the bathroom. <laughs> I wasn't sure if we should say that. Yeah, on, you can say in the bathroom. Uh, yeah. That's a true no. story. <laughs> Nick was that makes bathroom. more sense because I was going, I didn't know there'd be a yeah. sink in the club. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, listen, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to talk about the siren song of L.A. And uh, but first, we're gonna have a song from the archives here on Snacking Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org.
My name is Brandon Boy, co-owner of Roberta's, a super duper awesome place. Roberta's is a very, 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 very proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. We're also super awesome. Thank you, Heritage. Hello and welcome back to Snacky Tunes. I'm with Nick and Akira of Konbi. So you're both in New York. New York, especially Monfuku Sambar in 08, 09, 10, like that is very much the center. I, I mean, thought, I worked at Original Noodle Bar. So and you worked like, at Noodle Bar. I've never seen anything like that. Noodle, People what, lining up for hours just to, to eat there. Yeah. It was, it was baffling to me. Um, and you did your time in New York, but I know that we, everyone in New York would ride off LA and then, you know, animal, you start hearing whispers of animal, you start hearing other things happening like that. When did you start considering that New York had had its moment and that it was time to go to the West Coast? Mm. And if not in like a general writing off of all of New York, just personally then? I don't even know if that's really why I... I, I don't know. Um, it was more personal for me yeah. than like feeling like, like the city was done. I still love New York City. Um, I mean, New York City is my first love. I, Everyone's I, first love. I think I really came to LA for like like personal reasons. I had a couple friends from high school, randomly yeah. enough, like high school in Mississippi that ended up out here, um, and I just wanted to see what was going on in this city. Um, and it turns out it was a really neat time for LA. Mm-hmm. This was and like, what year was like, this? Like five years ago. Okay. You know, it was kind of like right on the cusp of like like really cool stuff. Like Bestia was just mm-hmm. kind of getting getting traction back back then and all that good stuff. So. Um, there was definitely a shift, I would say four or five years ago, when LA, because it always used to be New York versus San Francisco, mm-hmm. and I always thought that that was unfair because I felt San Francisco just, if you took away their access to great produce, I felt like it wasn't a fair comparison. Mm-hmm. But with LA versus New York now, I feel like it, that's really the competition. Yeah, I mean, now LA's got so many incredible restaurants open, and, and, and uh, it's, it's really... Uh, a serious part of the conversation now. You know? Yes, it is. And Akira, what brought you out to LA? I think, yeah, same, like personal reasons. Um, we, we were looking at uh, other cities that we could live in that, you know, made sense for for us. And, the two of you? Um, my wife and I. Uh, and uh, we were going to move to the Bay for the longest time, and then it suddenly just spiked in price. And... There wasn't another city we could think of that we wanted to move to. So, and then Nick and I had been talking in the background just about opening a place, uh, naively thinking it would take much shorter than we th- we actually ended up, you know, doing. But um, we wanted to have a work life balance, and LA seemed like the only place that you could open like a daytime restaurant and mm-hmm. and, and survive. So we were like, oh, well, we can go to LA, give it a shot. If it doesn't work out. We just moved back to New York. New York's never going to New York's never change. Yeah, it's, it's not going to the same. I mean, given your pedigrees and what people might think of you two when you say you're in joint forces and open a restaurant, do you think that people would have put pressure or did they put pressure on you to open more of your traditional, you know, 530 to 11 type of dining establishment? Or did you just say, we're going to do what we're going to do? Be damned. Mm. I, I mean, I think that we wanted to apply the same principles that we would have applied to, you know, a restaurant that was going for Michelin stars to, 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 to making vegetables and pastries and, and delicious sandwiches and all that. 
um, in, in an effort to just like you said, like like end up with a, a, a restaurant that was respectable by our peers and also allowed us a, uh, uh, a work-life balance that's pretty rare in this industry, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so. Yeah, so- I mean, for me, it's just like we talk a lot about just uh, company culture mm-hmm. and just like working backwards from what our, what do we want to accomplish for the company and our staff? And then we kind of just make decisions from that. And uh, the food is, uh, we're always pretty much on the same page when it comes to food. It's just like, get the best ingredients you can and price what you think you want to and then make the portion size appropriate. Yeah. And then, and you know, use all the techniques we've learned, but don't make it look like it's technique. It just looks very simple. Everything we want to do makes it look simple. And, and all the hard work is behind the scenes, and that's totally fine. That's totally fine. Um, when did the idea of Comedy... I mean, knowing that that was sort of what you want to apply to it, when did the idea of Comedy start percolating? Mm. Had you guys talked about it? You know, had you been... Did you have a, you know, trip to Japan where you had a sando? You're like, oh, we could do this in America? Mm. Well, I mean, we wanted to i guess since like probably five years ago we were talking about doing like a daytime kind of restaurant yeah serving like some sort of sandwiches it's kind of funny we even talked about serving egg salad sandwiches back then for some damn reason but um and and then you know a couple years later we started doing like pop-ups here yeah and um one of the sandwiches we served was one that akira had had uh had brought up from his time in japan which is kind of like this dashi um, and, and, an egg, uh, sandwich. And it was one of the most popular ones. Uh, so we were like, huh, this is interesting. Like, like no one's really taken this super seriously yet here. So let's just go down that rabbit hole. You know? I mean, how did you do, once you sort of focusing on that, how did you do your research for it? What did you start thinking about a menu would look like? And especially since they're, really aren't any other restaurants like yours in the city we um we kind of thought about well we we took a trip to japan together Mm because nick hadn't been and i i was you know we we saw the space for combi um and at the time we, we had looked for a space for like a year and a half and uh anyone who looks for a space can relate it's not something you're trying to do so you think oh it's gonna happen really quickly for me i'll be the guy i'm the one guy the guy that can open in a year i don't know why it's taking everyone so long and then you (laughs) go down the hole have their shit together yeah and you're like this space looks perfect what's the problem and uh no it everyone's you'll see it's the same for everyone (laughs) doesn't matter the size doesn't (laughs) matter matter the size it's not the size and the open secret is that while LA is a, is such a successful food town now, it is not the easiest place to open a restaurant. No, the the, the city permitting is very very strict, yeah. and that's fine. But uh, we learned a lot in the process of you know how to negotiate a lease that will determine your viability. Yeah, and uh, our friends from Civil Coffee had passed on this space that became Colby, so we we looked at it and then we just kind of reframed the thinking of maybe we can just figure out what will work in this space versus like we were like thinking of ideas what we want to cook and right. that was where where we were at like we need to find this size space to cook the food well and then we just kind of thought all right well this lease deal is really nice mm. what can we make work in the space and then uh we just thought through like that stuff and then we had taken the trip to japan and, and seen what small places are like tiny for the first yeah. time I mean, 
Nick didn't really believe me. And, uh, well, you get a little taste of that in New York City. Yeah, yeah, but, exactly. like, after being out here for a few years, it's like kind of like drifting away from that because a lot of people have so much space. So here. much space. But then going back to Tokyo, like going to Tokyo and like seeing what they do out of tiny, tiny spaces is just like, okay, we're not that dumb. Like, no, and it's, <laughs> and it's inspiring because the high level of craft of what they pour into, you know, a dozen menu items and that's being generous at some places yeah that comes out of a 300 square foot space right. and you go how are you doing it? and go well they can do it right mm-hmm. so um you know the sandwiches do really feel you know you've, you haven't been you've only been open less than a year but the sandwiches do feel that they've been around for such a long time so how much research did you put in before you opened how much were you pulling from life experience to put those on the menu because they seem very fully formed as ideas and as food they they are still sometimes slightly evolving. Even yeah. now, there there's slight changes we make and see if it's better. But like flavor wise, logistically picking it up, that stuff. Not 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 that anyone will really notice. But yeah. for us, so we, we try. If we find something better, we'll, we'll try it out. But I would say, if I mean, I scroll through my Instagram just for reference. Yeah, we were testing it for like two years ago at yeah. least, just at our houses for dinner parties for people coming over. Just can you taste this? Yeah. And it was completely... The, the the flavor of the sandwich was there for, like, the omelet. But we the technique that we are employing is completely different now based on what the equipment got approved in the end for the space. So that dictated mm-hmm. a lot of the change mm-hmm. we had to make. And, and, like, it's important we talk about that very briefly when we talk to people who are friends of ours who are opening spaces that are obsessed with like we're gonna we're doing this menu we need a rotor vac and a vacuum right and you're like like, don't focus on that just focus on like like what you want your your culture to be like that kind of stuff because your equipment's probably gonna change what's gonna get approved by the health department Mm -hmm. and that kind of stuff will change and then two years later you don't really know what you want to cook like It'll change. So for us, it, over time, it's the the idea was there, but the the sandwiches we ended up doing are the ones that just survive for practical purposes. Like there are a couple others we really wanted to do that just don't they didn't make the cut because we can't actually do it in that space. Yeah, that are delicious that we'd love to do, but they never work. So they're not going to work. They're not going to work. They work at your house, but right. they do not work in a in restaurant reality. setting. Yeah. But in our reality, yeah, yeah, in our reality, it doesn't work. So, um, you know, it's funny when you mentioned seeing bloggers in 2008, yeah, yeah. blowing your mind about posting about food because your sandwiches, I feel like when you guys were coming out, were just all over Instagram, and not in a bad way, but it's just it was the food that you guys make was so built for social media and, and your design. Um, but I know that that's not always the purpose. Sometimes it's just a happy accident. Mm-hmm. Um, but how do you deal with that where you go, I don't want to be known as the Instagram sandwich place. Like I want people to come and get the food versus knowing that some people nowadays are just going to come take a photo and not really care about what they're eating. Mm. I, I cannot stress enough <laughs> that we did not build food for Instagram. Okay. Nor um, do we still we don't make dishes for that purpose. And I and I, again cannot stress enough that like like when you make food, like you're just trained to make it look good. Like yeah. that's just that is the job of 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 a cook is to make food that looks looks visually appealing and tastes fucking delicious. 
Um, but so, also, like, for us, our training is very, at this point, very intuitive. Yeah. So, like, you think through, like, the whole process to the end user, you're thinking about how this is going to eat. What utensils, what bowl is going to make the most sense for this dish? So, like, that's what we spend most of our time thinking about. It happens to turn out looking a certain way, but not yeah. because we want to accomplish that for a photo. It's just, like, that makes the most sense. But I feel like eat it. part of the process now when people go out to eat is go to the restaurant, look at the menu, order, get the food, take the photo, right. and mm-hmm. then eat. Totally. And that's, I, I don't think we fight that fight. We no. just let it happen. There's no use in doing yeah. that. I mean, they, a lot of the people who come are so nice. And honestly, it's very helpful for us if they do Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Yeah. We have zero social media skills. As you can see on our business Instagram, we have no strategy. It's not bad. I enjoy it. <laughs> it feels, it feels very neighborhood. It feels yeah, very embracing, like, like a part of community, which is nice for being such a new spot. Nick is a master Instagram storyteller, but... You Your know, Instagram stories I, are good. Yeah, I've been distracted he's, lately. He's been but very busy. I'll, I'll get back to but it. But he's the best. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, we don't have a strategy in place, so it's not like the, the stuff we think about. It's just like, mostly we try to like... Shout out to our friends. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Like when Bell's rolls in. Yeah, like that's <laughs> it. Like, hey, go see these guys. Go see like, these guys. Go see these guys. They're doing something great. Now, I want to make sure that we touch on the croissants because when you go to a, a daytime breakfast spot, usually when you walk in, like if you go to Paris or any bakery, first thing that's up is the croissants, right? But for you guys, the croissants come out, I'll say 8.39, and you got to time it. And the last time I was there... Every croissant had been spoken for before they came out of the oven. So I have a feeling now knowing that it's probably based on the space and the design. Mm-hmm. But what is the whole timing and thought behind the croissants when they come out and why they're not there the second you open your doors? That's just reality because it takes, you know, when you make a croissant, you have to let it rise before you bake it. Yeah. And that takes time. You know, so it takes about like two and a half to three hours to to proof. It's called proofing, um, and and then you bake it, which takes twenty minutes or so. So if you think about what time someone's got to get there in the morning, yeah, to make that happen, it's like still we get there at five five thirty in the morning just to make that happen by like eight thirty nine o'clock. You know, and it would just not really fit in with our idea of building a company culture that provides a work-life balance if we yeah. said hey guys you gotta come in at four o'clock in the morning so we can have croissants at, at you know eight o'clock on the dot like that's just not what we do there um, it's, it's sort of fun though i mean it's sort of fun to be like i'm gonna time it because I, sometimes i've nailed it and sometimes i've completely <laughs> missed it it's, well it's yeah. just the there's variety there's changes in the, the temperature obviously that yeah. affect the proofing time and when there's a drop in humidity it affects the proof like, a lot of stuff happens that we don't have a you've seen it we don't have a proofing box we no. don't have anything we're we literally have a induction burner with a pot of water enclosed in a box and we have a Wi-Fi <laughs> indicator with the temperature and humidity and we're, you know, we're relying on that and we make adjustments already all the time. Yeah. So we can make it happen, but we can't say they're coming out at 8.30, like or this time. Yeah. It's a rough idea, but what happens is you, you let the croissants proof. In that time, we're breaking off candelays. We're breaking off the financiers. So like... Candelays are fantastic, by the way. The, yeah, the decisions of what we can make are based on, one, how much storage space it takes up and then... 
in the in the time that the croissants are proving we can bake it off so like those are the pastries we think about and those two made the most sense to us we both think they're delicious mm -hmm. but it, yeah it's a lot of it's just logistics based on our space it's it's uh they're hey they always sell out yeah they're, they're delicious yeah. they're delicious yeah they're they're there's um they're delicious we we put a lot of effort into them every day they're the ingredients are really great you yeah know? it's great so before we're out of time, I, I want to just ask not so much about what the review said, but just about the LA Times review and being just added into that pantheon. And what does that feel, especially coming from the East Coast, opening up a restaurant that is very much your own and of your hearts, and then to be reviewed by the Times? Do you feel like that was the stamp that like we are here, we've made it, we're in LA? Mm. I, I mean, I think... The, um we didn't really think about that. We just thought, one, we have no idea what Patricia looks like, so we had no clue until they reached out to fact check that we were getting reviewed. Yeah, we some, didn't even know. Sometimes you know what people look like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. fine, like, oh crap, we're here. We gotta yeah. Let's just pretend. Let's like not pretend. Like if Jonathan Gold, yeah. RIP, yeah, had exactly. walked in, you'd be like, yeah. okay. Yeah. Most but. of the people in the food industry we, we know just from being in New York. So yeah. we have no idea what Patricia looks like. So she had, she had a very honest experience. So yeah. We're very happy with the review. I don't know if it's a stamp of approval, but it feels good to open something that's not like, we're coming from out of town, we're going to show you how to do this. It's like we made a restaurant that we feel like is an L.A. restaurant. Like, yes. You know, like people are coming from other places to is, be like, this is Columbia in L.A. Which is one of the biggest failures of people who come from New York and open a restaurant. They open up a New York restaurant in L.A. instead of saying... We are opening up an LA restaurant in LA. Yeah, we're very proud of the food culture here, and like our friends are doing really great things. We're we're supportive of everyone who's doing something, and I think that was really nice more than anything else that they they look at it as a restaurant that was bred here and not just like, oh, we just transplanted something, you know, and, and just did it here. It's a New York ramen style restaurant. Yeah, yeah. it does feel good. Because it is a very personal restaurant to us because yep. of of how like you know. Everything about it is very, very personal to both of us. So we're like, if people don't like this, like it's actually gonna kind of hurt like a lot. <laughs> um, I mean, so we just, had no idea what people were gonna think. Like yeah. we, we, we're apparently very particular people. I didn't know that before our design team told us that. But we, like, we picked out every part of the restaurant from the counter, the plates, the like, spending hours looking for the right silverware and like. On eBay, like, so it, it's a very personal restaurant. Obviously, it, it feels like our restaurant, and I, I think it feels like a, for. I mean, it's just like this is what I would imagine a Japanese restaurant we would want to make, but with the regulations we have here is the is how we look at it. It's like a lot of the decisions were based on ADA rules, and we we just play in that those rules, and this is what we have to do. Well, I want to thank you guys for playing by the rules and making something very awesome. If people want to visit in real life or online, where can they go? Uh, it's ConbiLA.com. It's the website. And then Instagram is just Combi. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much. I uh, appreciate you taking the time. I will be back in for a sandwich very soon. Up next is a song from the archives and then a live performance here on Snacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org.
Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Coral Lee, and I'm the host of Meant to Be Eaten here on HRN. Every week, I look at cross-cultural exchange in food and contemporary media. What determines authenticity? What, if anything, gets lost in translation when cooking foods from another's culture? You can find Meant to Be Eaten wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Darren Bresnitz. We are coming to you live from Dangerbird Record Studios in sunny Silver Lake, and we are here with Mirrorball. Welcome to Snacky Tunes. Hello, thank you. Hello, thanks for having us. So, as LA and close to LA OC natives, um, 
I feel that you guys have a unique take on the scene because so many people move here to do music, but you grew up here making music and being part of the scene. What is it like to grow up and make music and be part of LA as something that's been your backdrop your entire life? Hmm. Gosh, it's kind of hard to sum up, but I think I think it's weird a little bit because you never have sort of that moment where you can go somewhere brand new and become this new person. Mm. You never really have that. So it's, I love LA, like I've never been able to leave. <laughs> um, but at the same time, it's like, it's like a part of you that you can't really <laughs> get rid of in this way. Um, but I guess I see it from sort of like, like I, we were sort of talking about earlier, like my parents both worked in the movies, but they worked on the crew. And so I saw it from like that sort of background sort of view and like... The less glamorous, more blue collar, like yeah. working, hardworking type of approach to LA than the off the bus glitz and glamour. Exactly. But then there's also this sort of like, yeah, I do think there is sort of like a magic, sort of like a sadness and a magic to LA that it sort of continues to draw me in at, that I love and can see. But yeah, I guess that, would, I guess that sums up my answer. <laughs> Scott, how do you feel about growing up here? I mean, I guess I feel lucky to just sort of, not by choice, I ended up on kind of like the east side of mm -hmm. things over here. And I've been out here on this side of town for 15 years. And I guess I just feel lucky because there's a lot of cool music Yeah, that's been happening for a while. Um, I kind of don't really, I forget that I'm even in like, like the show business town just kind of always and I'm on the east side yeah it's easy the further away you get from the beach yeah. I guess uh, more east on the 10 to forget about Hollywood and glitz and glam and all that type of stuff yeah like I was telling him uh, earlier like I drove down Hollywood Boulevard for the first time and I like saw like Darth Vader and Chewbacca oh yeah and I was, I was like, oh my god, I totally forgot, like, this is where I live. Yeah, it's like when you live in New York and you just never go up to Times Square. You're yeah, like, oh, yeah. right. I mean, we kind of take certain things for granted being here, like, certain, I feel like tourists come here and have, they kind of, like, take advantage of all the cool things, and I don't know. So, you've both been in this local scene for a while. Um, and you were both in different projects. So how did you two sort of sniff each other out, think about making music together? What What is that musical courtship like in, in this day and age? <laughs> I guess I sniffed her out. I mean, I approached her like more like for a relationship purposes. <laughs> <laughs> the band thing happened um, after, that was, a, that happened later. I mean, I was, a, I was a fan of her band. I liked her band already. You were like, let's make music together, and then you're like, and then we should also have a band. Let's, I was like, let's make music <laughs> together, and then let's make music together. <laughs> <laughs> um, but how does that start, though? You know, uh, we're always interested in the beginning of a creative process when something goes from, oh, maybe we should do this to actually, like, let's write a song, and let's get this going. What was your story? Well, when we 
met, I was working on some soundtracks at the time, um, and my band had like kind of just broken up, so I was feeling kind of, I understood why it broke up and I was okay with it, but I was like melancholy, you know, about it. All breakups are tough. Yeah, and uh, I wasn't really like wanting to jump into another <laughs> musical or other relationship, <laughs> but... <laughs> Everything, yeah, you know, like that saying that things just happen when you least expect them. Sure. And he was messing around on Logic, and I heard the music. I just knew whatever I wanted to do next had to be really, like, natural or whatever. Come naturally, I guess you'd say. And um, I was like, oh, I wrote some lyrics to that, and then that was the song this time. This is actually the first song we've ever done together. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, it's kind of like funny that someone wanted to put it out not funny it's cool but um yeah it just went from there so yeah so yeah we had already been she asked me for help on helping her like kind of engineer uh for this like soundtrack that we were working on for that she was working on for netflix so that's right you had done some composing for netflix yeah what is that like that must be fun it's really fun. It's different than, definitely really different than just writing songs for yourself or for your own projects, because um, obviously there's, like, they have something particular in mind. Yeah, someone's like, that's really cool, that that means a lot to you, but it's, we don't care, and we need <laughs> it to sound a little bit more sinister. Yeah, that definitely can happen, and for the most part, I, it was, it was never, like, I never felt like, oh, like, you know, bummed that they didn't use this one. I, it was actually pretty much uh, mostly um, what I thought would end up getting used or, you know, or they didn't reject too much, but it definitely you have to sort of do what they're thinking. But that must be a little bit more freeing, right? Because when you're doing mirrorball music, how we true to ourselves, how do we true to our artistry, what are we trying to say because it's so much about us, and then with the soundtrack, it's you applying your art and your creativity to a different vision. Yeah. I think it's just like, sorry, I'll let you answer next one. I think it's sort of like writing or something. Like you write uh, something for yourself on your own and then you write something for a show or something. It's, you know, it has to be like shaped a certain way with, you know, certain things in mind. But um, I learned a lot from doing the soundtracks, really honestly, just like songwriting wise. I think that sometimes when you do something for a really long time, you get almost like lazy mm -hmm. just like complacent a little bit and I was like oh okay like I learned how to sort of use logic to create different parts and yeah and Scott too so that was cool yeah I mean that was when we were doing that that was when we were like on downtime I just started making other tracks like just for fun and that was accidentally like the beginning of Mirrorball that was she like wrote lyrics and they weren't supposed to necessarily be songs we knew we had wanted to start a band, um, but it was going to be like after we finished composing for this, um, and then it just sort of happened. I love it. Um, we'll tear a song. What's the first song you're going to play? Natural World. Natural World. This one just came out. This is a little different version than came out on Dangerbird, but yeah, this is the most recent. So wait, song. is this a Snacky Tunes exclusive? Yes. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> yes. Uh, all right, here we go. Mirrorball, Danger Bird, Record Studios here on Snacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Mm -hmm. 
Sweet. So, being in L.A., growing up here, I always love to pick the people's brains who have been around long enough to not go to the fly-by-night restaurants and hit places, like the places that people love from living in a place that are just local spots. And so where do you guys love to go? And are there spots that you like to go just when you're on your own or you're like, I need that cup of coffee in my own, you know, escape from the world. And there's places that you like to go like after a show that's more in the scene. Oh man. <laughs> How much time do you have, right? Yeah. Well, I always get like a little nervous. I'm going to like forget or something, but yeah, it's definitely been the scenery has changed a lot, especially mm-hmm. over the past few years. Especially um, on the east side. Yeah. For something, I actually tried to put together a list of, like, restaurants for something, and um, I tried to look at them after, and I was like, oh my god, they're all, like, really old, <laughs> or like, I don't know, I was like, I haven't mentioned anywhere new, like, oh god, but, um, let's see, oh man. I mean, over where I'm from, it's sort of like San Gabriel Valley, so um, there's a lot of really good restaurants out there. Oh, yeah. Um, like, Asian food is really good over there. Um, what else? Oh, man. Take over um, for a minute while I think. <laughs> I mean, we honestly have resorted to driving to, like, Monrovia, Arcadia, Sierra Madre, like, 20, 30 minutes like, east of here. Where I've kind of given up on Silver Lake. Yeah. I I'm, mean, there's, like... Or, like, honestly, we go to Tacos Delta. We go to Tacos Delta. <laughs> there's, the I'm kind of a sucker for, like, the environment of a place. Sure. So places like Tam O'Shanter, and there's a place called Northwoods Inn, which is, like, there's newer ones now, but there's one in... Um, in Arcadia, is that Arcadia or Monrovia? But it like it's like all wooden, and it kind of mm. looks like Disneyland or something, but like from the '60s. Yeah, because there's not a a lot of old wooden leather mm-hmm. like you have on the East Coast, so you've got to be really particular when you're trying to find those yeah. old school vibey and I'll say Mad Men esque era type of yeah. places. Um, I don't. I'm a big fan of SGV. Like, there's yeah. tons of dim sum over there that we absolutely love and go to. I'd rather drive to the valley than to the west side. Yeah. To get food. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and, and the places I'm thinking of are, like, really old, so they're probably not, hopefully not going anywhere anytime soon, because they're practically, like, historic for, especially around here. Yeah. But um, the more, like, recent old places I'm trying to think of, but, yeah, it just, it changes so rapidly, and, the, like, you'll see a new place on the corner, like, a new ramen place or something, and you're like, cool, I'll check that out. But then before you can even check it out, it's, like, gone. Yeah. No, nah, I'm less inclined to check out new places. I am uh, lately, especially. I used to be the what's new, that's what I'm going to eat this week, and now I just want something that I love and is going to be good, which makes me sound like an old man. Um, no, I hear you. I've definitely yeah, I mean, had... definitely when I, like, I want to feel like I can count on something. Yeah. Um, the idea of changing LA and expanding and things like that I found plays a lot into your lyrics as well of just you know LA is forever changing and things are getting torn down or built back up and how does the constant building and then demolition of LA and expansion and recess 
inspire you guys and your music and, and what you're about? Oh, gosh. Um, well, I think it's just one of those things where it sort of marks time or it makes time passing more. It's like a manifestation of time passing, which can be, depending on your mood that day, it can be sad or happy. Mm-hmm. And especially when you're in one place so long, sometimes it can make you feel weird, like walking by a place and going like, oh, I remember that used to be there or like, that's when I was 20 or like, I don't know, you know. Oh, uh, yeah. Sometimes it even can make you uncomfortable, but I don't know. It's Why does it make you uncomfortable? Mm, maybe just to think about so much time passing. Mm. Um, but there's also like a beauty to it. There's just sort of like a beautiful thing about L.A. I don't know, it sounds so corny, but it's just sort of imbued into it. So it changes, but it doesn't change that much, I hope. <laughs> I hope it doesn't change that much more. I, I think it's going to change. Oh, shoot. Um, oh, where should I move? Um, what's easter than the east side? Well, yeah. I mean, Maybe that's where the thing. I it's grew just, up. It just gets, like, when I first moved out here, Silver Lake was, like, uh, it was pretty seedy. Like, it wasn't at all how it is, like, today. And then uh, just, yeah. like... It got more popularized, and then people moved to Echo Park, and then the same thing happened to Echo Park, and then everybody moved to Highland Park. Mm-hmm. So everyone, everyone just gets keep pushing more east. So. Then you wind up in Eagle Rock. Yeah. Yeah. Which, by the way, if you don't live in LA and you're listening, just get a map, and you'll see the uh, yeah. what we're talking about. I yeah. love Eagle Rock. Is still there? Yeah. Um, with LA changing so much, and you know, you guys being an LA band, how much do you feel? that you owe the city or like that you're tied to the city do you think you could ever break away from it or do you think that being here makes up so much of who you are and what your music is oh gosh it's I mean I think it's hard when it's also where you grew up and also where all your memories of your family and all that stuff and your ties your literal ties are to it so I've thought about what will I do when it continues to become more and more like Manhattan or something. Mm. Like already right now, places I used to go, I can't find any parking anymore. (laughs) So I just like, I don't know what to do. So sometimes I'll just leave. And um, yeah, it's just, I've thought about where to go. I don't know. I've thought about maybe like New Mexico or something. I hope it doesn't come to that because my my family that I have left is still here. So that's another reason why I don't really want to just like pick up and leave. But I think a lot. Yeah, it has influenced me a lot. Yeah, I feel like almost every song I mention L.A. And I even thought about the other day. I was like, maybe I should like not (laughs) say L.A. in every single song. But yeah. Um, All right. Well, let's hear another song. What do you have? What's this next L.A. inspired song? Boy. No, what's the next song about? Or what's the next song? Endless Abroad. Endless Abroad. <laughs> Which, that's Endless kinda Abroad. It has the word abroad in it, so... There we, and not, Endless. It might be the only one that doesn't have the word LA in it, so... Okay, <laughs> well, here we go. Uh, Mirrorball on Snacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org.
awesome. <laughs> so you guys put out uh, your debut single with Dangerbird, correct? Yes. Um, how did your relationship with Dangerbird Records start? Scott knew them more, so I'll let him go. <laughs> My friend Brian is a director here for the Arthur King installations. Art, um, I'm not really sure how to... Arthur King. Arthur King Snack. have actually been on Snacky Tunes, and so you can check out the archives for that one. Awesome. But But yeah, they're the recording natural nature sounds and video and then making live compositions. Yeah, yes. Exactly. So, uh, All yeah, of that. My friend, All of that. My friend Brian helps with that. I, had, I, I literally just was asking him, like, hey, we want to send you some tunes. Um, maybe you can help. He, like, works in music a lot, so I asked him to help help me and I sent him the tunes and then I was actually help asking for help like on the actual music and then he was like hey do you want to put these up with Dangerbird and we're like what like this is like our first like little demos like uh yeah <laughs> that's very cool I don't think it really happens like that does it no uh, I'm looking at Andy <laughs> Andy's shaking his head no it does not normally happen like that it does for mirrorball. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. If you're a mirrorball, then it happens. <laughs> um, yeah, um, I mean, I've known Aaron for a very long time. Um, so yeah, I don't, so, yeah. so that's how it happened. When you're thinking about putting out your first single, what goes into that? Because you can only have one first single, one debut song ever. How do you? How do you um, pare it down? How do you say this is our first statement out into the world? Yeah. I felt like, well, I felt like these songs just were really natural. Mm -hmm. I think that we've probably changed since then, you know, but um, for me, it's like important to not feel really like calculated. So I didn't want to like overthink. So I just, we had these songs and we thought they were pretty cool and we just went with it. Pretty much. <laughs> I mean, I think we were like pretty. They were like very well received by like all of our friends. I I was like just kind of like sending it out to like a handful of people, and I think uh, like for me it was I definitely noticed like a difference from like handing out older songs <laughs> from like other bands. I've seen how you've reacted before, and now <laughs> I see how you're acting, which I'm excited about. Well, but I also like know. You, but you, it's also you an wanna, insult. You want to have that like <laughs> you want to have that like confidence that like when you're making something you're like, oh, this is amazing, but like you can't expect like other people, especially your friends. Oh yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. Yeah, I think as you get older, hoping that your friends like your art and what you make becomes less of a priority because yeah. on the flip side sometimes you can't be bothered with yeah. the uh, art your friends make. And that's not saying you don't yeah. respect it, but sometimes you're like, you're my friend and I love you, but I don't like this. And yeah. that gets tough. But uh, yeah. you didn't have that problem because your friends actually like this. Yeah, we've been lucky. Yeah, I mean, our friends actually like it. It's kind of an eye-opening experience, I think, to like... <laughs> I don't know. Like, no, I get it, because it makes you think about the stuff from the past. Be like, oh, I noticed you're at my shows now, but whatever, you weren't at my shows before. But that's, that's the past. Yeah. Totally. And if I get some, yeah, if I, if I have a friend chiming in like, you should do this song this way or that way, it's always because they like 
a certain version they've heard. So it's, even though sometimes it's like, okay, I get it, but like, it's a positive criticism or whatever. Mm-hmm. Now, the single is always that lead piece of music that you're like, this is our song, this is our anthem, is it? But I'm always interested about the B-side, because I've heard, you know, <laughs> Don't Sleep on the B-side, and it always has a chance to be a little bit weirder, a little bit more, this one's for you, that's the A-side, and the B-side's for us. So how do you, how'd you pick your B-side for this? Was it something a little bit more personal, a little bit something a little bit more experimental, or you, you said, this song is just slightly not as good as the A-side? Um, I... I think, well, oh gosh, it came about experimentally just because I heard it, a little demo that he was making, and I was like, oh, I want to put lyrics on that. It's nothing like any, I've never done a song like that before. Like, all my prior bands were more like folk rock or something. Sure. um, And I was just like, I just like how it sounds. It's not, to me, it's not really heavy in like one direction. Like, it's very... It's sort of weird, but not like, it's not, I wouldn't say it's heavily experimental, but it's just, it is kind of its own little thing. And I just kind of liked that about it. Yeah. I love it. I liked the little riffs I heard. Yeah. I I was sold. That was another (laughs) one. I was just like, this will never be a song. I'm just messing around over here. And no intention of it ever being anything. And then, I don't know, maybe that was just like the magic of those tunes of like, not really, because sometimes it's harder when you're, like, trying. And you're like, all right, this yeah. part's going to be this, and I can see the crowd in my mind, you know, doing it when we play this. <laughs> yeah, I'm, like, oh, trying to, like, sometimes when we're, like, trying to, like, trying to write something, it can be, like, when you're starting, like, contriving and... Yeah. yeah. You can those, lose your those way. Those particular two songs were kind of, like, that lightning in a bottle, kind of capturing lightning. <laughs> like, how do you do that? Like, how do we get back to that mental state where right? I I'm going to make something that's not a song. Like. Just think like you're uh, doing a soundtrack for another show. Yeah, true, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we've been writing a lot lately, just for ourselves, and it's definitely different. Like, we're not just like, Ugh, but, um, yeah, it's just... <laughs> you can't see <laughs> the, hand, doing the hand gesture, but that was throwing caution to the wind. Yeah, I, I, think, I, 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 I think so. <laughs> I was uh, like, how is he going to describe that? I'm not. <laughs> no, no, I got it. Um, so, one last question... What is, or where is, or who is the most inspiring thing in L.A. for your music? Oh, my God. (laughs) That's really hard. That's really, really hard. Oh, my God. I don't even know what I'm going to answer. I guess, hmm, I guess if I had to say something... I don't know. I don't, I don't like write too. the lyrics, so it's it can be about the music too. Just in general, like what's the most inspiring yeah. thing here? Oh yeah. my god, jeez, that's like hard to. It's hard to pick one thing. I just get back to the element of friends really quick. I'm actually being truthful when I say that my friends they really do inspire me, like with their work that they still do. I'm just really lucky because I sort of grew up with people who continued to do cool things. And, um, like, every time they do something, I'm just like, whoa, okay. Like, whether it's a painting or my friends making a film, I don't know. Yeah, I'm just, I am really inspired by them. I think that if it weren't for them, like, I think I would still be doing this, but I don't know if that I'd be doing it 
the way that I'm doing it still. I mean, I guess, uh, I guess for me, it's probably like <laughs> this project. I don't know, because I've been playing like rock music, like more like '90s maybe. Or, yeah. But uh, this is completely different than anything I've done before, and it's been like really fun to like make because uh, I'm a songwriter first so like crafting songs for another person and like working with somebody with like a really good voice and digging their lyrics that's probably like the thing for me awesome I don't know it's <laughs> no, like good. a new experience like reinventing yourself um, well there you go that's how you reinvent yourself in LA if you never leave LA you just start a new yeah. band I just learned something. Yeah, and I guess also getting over, like, yourself and allowing other people to, like, getting older and getting rid of ego. And yeah, no more ego. Oh, yeah. Although I still do write some of the songs. <laughs> you to mention that. No, I'm just I mean, kidding. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, I want to thank you. Um, if people want to find you online or hear the single or get the single, where can they go? Okay, gosh. it's Well, it's, like, streaming, like, everywhere, quote-unquote. That's not a good way to describe it. It's on, like, Spotify. Sure. Apple. So just search Mirrorball. Mir- Mirrorball, yeah. It's It should come and up. Sometimes you have to search Mirrorball, then the name of it, which is this time. Oops. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. No, that was just the internet agreeing with you. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, I want to thank Andy, Dangerbird Record Studios, Heritage Radio. Um, what's the last song you're going to play for us? This one's called This Time. This is the Oh, one. it's the single. Yeah. It's the single. It's the single. <laughs> Uh, thank you so much. We will see you next time on Snacky Tunes. Have a great day.
Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.